sense and nonsense. You know, the more I've thought about it as we think of interacting with people and even in our own lives, we can boil life down and relationships in life and issues we face in life to basically sense and nonsense. There are certain things that we hear, we may study, we may have presented to us that makes absolutely no sense at all. And yet to the person that is saying it, presenting it, or teaching it, it makes all of the sense in the world. Sense and nonsense. I remember the first time I sat in on a class in metaphysics. And I want to tell you something, I didn't have a clue as to what they were talking about. But it made absolute sense to the person presenting it. Sometimes we can look in the little magazine, Acts and Facts, and see some of these great scientists who have been studying different aspects of the universe in which we live, and they'll make a presentation and they'll give all the mathematical formulas and talk about how interactions are taking place in this cause-effect universe in which we live, and right over our heads nonsense. In the same way, there's times we sit in meetings and the accountant presents to us all of the information of balancing the books and what is a debit and what's a credit and what's a liability and what's to our advantage. And I'll tell you what, I often have to ask that accountant to repeat it for me because while it makes perfect sense to Kobe, sometimes it just goes right by me. I get documents in the mail, and uh, sometimes I have to call up Chad and say, Chad, I don't understand all this legal lingo. I can't make sense out of it. I need you to help me comprehend. Now, maybe I'm alone in this. Maybe there aren't circumstances in which you have found yourself where sense and nonsense is what really tells us the uh, reality of relationships and what we're pursuing. We hear someone that speaks a different language. And boy, they're just rattling on and on and on and on and on. And sometimes not wanting to appear to be totally ignorant, we might "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm," maybe smile. But we have to confess what they're saying is absolute nonsense to us because we can't comprehend. We're told that what makes a good teacher is not someone who can impress others with how much he or she has learned, but how to take lofty concepts and bring them into the sphere of reference of the audience to talk about great ideas to toddlers and try to relate it to experiences of life in adulthood is nonsense to the toddler because it's not in their sphere of reference. Sense and nonsense. Well, if we look up a definition of these two terms, it basically says that when we talk about sense, there's one aspect of it that has to do with the special 
faculties that are connected to bodily organs by which man and other animals perceive the external objects and their own bodily changes. But in addition to that, it has to do with things that have relevance, have meaning, that we comprehend, that seem to be intellectually accurate in our sphere of reference. But something that is nonsense to us are words or ideas that lack meaning or are absurd. They're foolish or meaningless actions or behavior. Anything of little importance or utility. And sometimes even the most profound things, the important things, can seem to us as nonsense. In fact, when we go to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul made it very clear that spiritual things are foolishness. They are nonsense to the natural man. But to those who are taught by the Spirit, they make all the sense in the world. They're an accurate reflection of who God is and how things are. And one of the real questions you and I need to ask ourselves, how is it that we living in this world who were like the rest of mankind to whom spiritual things and the Word of God were absolute foolishness and nonsense, now all of a sudden became sensible to us. It's the fact that we don't understand how the Spirit moves to convict of sin, to give a sense of peace within, to comprehend spiritual truth. And Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, is telling us that you and I need to recognize that things in life are sense and nonsense and have a profound importance for each one of us. And I'd like you to turn with me now to the book of Ecclesiastes, hopefully with an appreciation of the fact that while some things may appear to be nonsense to us, they make perfect sense to others. And even more importantly, that some of the things of God that seem to make no sense at all to the people of the world make absolute perfect sense to the people of God. For example, why would a physician who has great earning power who could make a life for himself and his family in our culture and our economy, give it all up to go to one of the most impoverished nations of the world and expend his life without having that financial remuneration. It's nonsense. What a waste in someone's Life, And yet for the child of God, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Sense and nonsense from the perspective of the individual. So Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 
And I want to go back into chapter 9 and begin reading in verse 16. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a fool, a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So it is a uh, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Even when a fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. If a ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Now we know that this is one of the books of wisdom written by Solomon, and he wrote it because the most profound question for any one of us is where is it we find fulfillment, satisfaction, and purpose in life? And Solomon makes it clear that fulfillment, satisfaction, purpose in life is only found in a God-centered focus in life. Now, to so many, that doesn't make sense at all. It's all right to tip your hat to God and have Him as an addendum in your life, but not as the foundation upon which you build your life and the focus of your life and what is of the greatest priority in your life. And Solomon takes the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes to look at all of the temporal pursuits that man follows and to show how they leave the individual empty to where he or she is never satisfied and always needs something more. Even good things that you may live for in this life never ultimately fulfill and satisfy and give one the meaning and purpose in life that he or she desires. And in chapter 7 through 12, Solomon is telling us the deductions that come from it. And in um, principle, what he is saying is that you and I need to recognize that the wisdom that God gives is really what is one of the most essential things that we can have. And in the section that lies before us, Solomon has made it very clear, wisdom is better than strength, wisdom is better than weapons of war. He's used an example in a historical setting that he made a story or a proverb from, uh, a parable, excuse me, to explain the fact that someone just armed with wisdom, no other resource, was able to defeat an enemy that all of the resources that could be marshaled against that individual could never accomplish. The point he is making is wisdom is the most essential resource that any one of us can ever possess. But as he says that, he gives us a caution. And the caution is, at the end of verse um, 
18 of chapter 9, one sinner destroys much good, or chapter 10, verse 1, dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. The example of the dead flies in the perfumer's oil. When individuals would create a perfume, there was a specific recipe to be followed. And by following that specific recipe, there would come out of it a pleasing aroma or scent that would be used by individuals or maybe for incense or for other purposes to uh, stimulate the sense of smell and give someone a pleasing experience. But I guarantee you that the recipe to make a good perfume never included dead flies. Dead flies is an ingredient in the perfumer's recipe that destroys everything that is being accomplished. What do we need to learn from that? No matter how wise you are, no matter how much wisdom you possess, it is important for you to recognize just a little foolishness can destroy your reputation, can offset all of the smart, wise decisions you've made. And what we need to realize in all of that is God is never mocked. There are laws related to the harvest. And what you and I often fail to appreciate is that what I sow is exactly what I'll reap. And so Solomon is saying, no matter how wise you may be, no matter how skilled or gifted you are, no matter how much sense you can make out of the difficult things that you face in life, just a little foolishness is going to ruin that recipe. Just like dead flies do to the perfumer's oil. It is a recognition that I need to be vigilant. I need to be sure that I don't let knowledge puff me up to make me think I'm better than others, to give me an arrogance and a pride because of how much I know and look at how I have my life together. What is it that goes before the fall? Pride. And I need to always have that caution of heart that says no matter how sensible my decisions have been in the past, there can be situations where my emotions take control. And instead of making the reasonable decision, nonsense takes over and I make the foolish decision that can ruin my reputation that can offset all of the wise decisions I've made. Solomon said sin is powerful. It is destructive. And no matter how good an individual may be and the way they're living their life, that unguarded moment can prove to be downfall. You know what the reality is? Lord, I come and I confess finding in you my rest. Oh Lord, I need you. How often? 
Every hour I need you. You're my sure defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. A God-centered life is not foolish. A God-centered life is the ingredient to keep dead flies out of your decisions. To help you avoid the foolish mistakes that you will live with afterward. And so, based on that reality, Solomon now has a, an understanding of how this impacts individuals in life. He says in verse 2, A wise man's heart directs him to the right, but a foolish man's heart directs him to the left. Now, there are a number of things for us to see in, in this. The first would be when we look at the contrast, we're looking at the contrast of two different individuals, aren't we? He calls one the wise man, he calls the other the fool. And the second thing that we recognize out of it is the wise man has an inclination in his heart that directs his decisions, as he says here, to the right. But the fool has the inclination in his heart that when he makes his decisions, where will it direct him? To the left. Now we need to understand in the wisdom literature and in the biblical concept in that ancient world, the idea of the right had to do with the right hand. In fact, that's literally what Solomon says here. The wise man's heart directs him to the right hand. What is it that God said uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 110? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, he wasn't trying to say, well, people who are left-handed are inferior people. But it's the recognition. In fact, I'll pause for a moment because I know there's some left-handed people here. And uh, when one of my offspring was very young, I found a t-shirt that I loved greatly. It said, if the left side of the mind controls the right side of the body, then only left-handed people are in their right mind. Alright, so we'll settle that. But, the right hand was the expression or the image of strength, ability, power, honor, protection. In fact, one of the things in our own culture goes way back into ancient days. When we meet someone, what is it we do? We shake hands. And which hand do we shake with? The right hand. Because when I extended my right hand to someone I was meeting, I was saying, see, no sword. No weapon against you. I'm offering you friendship. And the use of the right hand is where the weapon would be wielded. The open hand was an expression of friendship and acceptance. In the Bible, we find that there were a number of left-handed individuals, especially from the tribe of Benjamin, who were experts with the use of the sling. 
it said that there were 600 men in Benjamin, all left-handed, who could hurl a stone at a hare and not miss. And the first time I read that, I thought it said they could sling the stone at an H-A-R-E hare. But what they really said is they could sling a stone at an H-A-I-R hare and not miss. The point was, they were pretty accurate. You didn't want to mess with them. It's the same thing David could do with his right hand when he brought the sling and the stone against Goliath. But from the standpoint of the scripture in the book, books of wisdom, the right hand speaks of the position of honor, of power, of acceptance, of protection. Where the left hand spoke of the position of rejection, spoke of doing away with. Do you remember what Jesus said, listed for us in the Olivet Discourse? When he returns after he gathers all of the Jews back to himself, then he gathers all the Gentiles and he separates all the Gentiles into sheep and goats. And where does he put them? The sheep he puts at his right hand and the goats he puts at his left hand. And so when it comes to the sheep, enter into the kingdom that was prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. When it comes to the goats at his left hand, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So the figure that is here, the wise man's heart directs him to that which is honorable, that which is good, that which is beneficial, that which is for his well-being. But the fool's heart directs him to that which is destructive, detrimental to his own harm. Isn't that what Solomon repeatedly brings out in the book of Proverbs? The fool, when he's walking along the way, he doesn't even know where he's going and he trips over the things that are there. And so what we find is, as Solomon is saying, that the wise man is able to make the decisions that are beneficial, but the fool is making the decisions that are harmful and destructive. As I was looking at this material, I thought I probably need to pause for a moment and just talk about what does the Bible mean when it speaks about a wise person and a foolish person. And what I think we need to be sure that we understand is that from a biblical standpoint, that there are two concepts that are found in the use of these terms. And as I tried to think through, how can I understand it for myself and then express it to you? I think when we think of the term wise and foolish, or the wise man and the foolish person, man, that there is an absolute sense in which we find it in Scripture, and there is also a relative sense in which we find it in Scripture. In other words, there is a spiritual sense of the terms wise and fool, and there is a temporal sense in the terms wise and fool. 
And the spiritual terms, wise and foolish, are absolute. But the temporal sense is relative between wise and foolish. Now let me further explain. In the absolute sense, when I read especially the wisdom literature, the terms righteous, believer, God-fearer, are associated with being wise. The terms wicked, non-believer, are associated with the term foolish. Therefore, from a biblical standpoint, every human being in the ultimate sense, in the absolute sense, is either a wise individual or a fool. And the wise individual is the one that recognizes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the individual who has his or her confident trust in the Lord. But the foolish individual is the one that despises uh, instruction and understanding. Now what kind of instruction and understanding is it talking about? No desire for and ignorance of what the Bible teaches. And some individuals are very blatant in how they demonstrate that folly. Well, I reject the Bible because it's full of contradictions. Have you ever read it? No. What an ignoramus. To make a definitive statement, because maybe you heard something, but you've never checked it out for yourself. No wonder the Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. No wonder it says fools despise wisdom and understanding. Because to the natural man, the things of God are what? Nonsense. They're foolishness. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually apprehended. But God is the one that works within us and changes the inclinations of our heart to where what used to be nonsense now makes perfect sense. And we have the ability of comprehending the truths of God. And we would say, instead of that the Bible is filled with contradictions, it's irrelevant for where we are today. Why would someone waste their life learning what the Bible teaches? We recognize thy word is a lamp unto my feet and it's a light unto my path. We come to recognize the fact that I'm the individual that's not listening to the counsel of the people of the world in whatever category I put them in, be they the sinner, the scoffer, or the wicked. But my delight is in the law of the Lord and in that law I meditate day and night and it has a transforming power within me. And to the people of the world, it makes no sense at all. But from the perspective of God, that's the individual on the left hand. That's the individual that's the fool. That's the individual that will hear from God, depart from me, I never knew you. Versus the individual that is now righteous in the sight of God. And we know that that righteousness he has is because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that is the individual who recognizes there's no other name given among men whereby you might be saved. But it's only by confident trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that I now have a righteousness that comes from God and not my own, which is by my merits or works. 
and therefore I am considered wise and acceptable to God. And when I enter into his presence, he opens his arms and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Sense and nonsense. What makes perfect sense to the believer is nonsense to the non-believer. What makes sense to the non-believer, the believer weepingly says, how sad. You're in a slippery place. No matter how much you prosper, no matter how much you have, all that awaits you is eternal damnation outside of Christ. The wise, the foolish, in the absolute sense. But I also need to understand that there in the temporal world is the reality of a relative sense in where the term wise and foolish can be used. I have to confess when I look at individuals how they handle certain areas of life, even though they're believers, they might make some dumb decisions. On the other hand, there are decisions I make that I know are dumb too and my wife can list them all for you. So I can be wise in the absolute sense and still make some bad decisions. I can be foolish. Now some of that has to do with how much I've grown and understood about the world around me. That's why what are we commanded in the New Testament to do? Not only I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God, which is holy and acceptable to God, but he also says, don't be conformed to the age in which you live, but be transformed, how? By renewing your mind. I am to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord. It is a recognition that I need to have a renewal taking place in my thinking process that I might make the decisions that honor God that are ultimately for my best good. And so, as a student of God's Word, I'm growing in that grace and in that understanding. There's also aptitude that we have, isn't there? Some individuals have an aptitude for certain things that others don't. We can see some individuals that make great linguists. Why? Because God gave them an ability to grasp languages very quickly. We see other individuals that make great mathematicians. They have the ability to understand mathematical concepts that can blow us all away. Not everybody is the Einstein when it comes to evaluating the things of this universe and its application to where we are here. What made Einstein so smart? What made the difference? Do you not know that the potter has the right over the clay to make each vessel as it pleases him? And even when Moses was commissioned by God, and you can see that recorded in Exodus chapter 4, Moses said to him, Lord, send someone else because I'm slow of speech. Now, we don't really understand what Moses was really saying. The Hebrew words are, send someone else because I have a thick tongue. In other words, when I try to talk, my tongue, they'll be kitten in the way. 
And God said, who made man so he could speak or he was dumb? Who gave man the ability to see or made him blind? Who gave man the ability to hear or made him deaf? Death. Is it not I, the Lord, who does all of these things? No wonder Paul could write to the Corinthians and say to them, What causes you to differ from one another? What do you have that you haven't received? And the problem in the church at Corinth, even in the believing community, was I'm smarter than my neighbor. I can do things faster than my neighbor, my brother in Christ. Therefore, I'm better than. And so Paul said, aren't you thinking like the non-believers where you end up with your little cliques and factions and you have this ability to evaluate yourself against yourself and you think, look how important I am? What do you have that you haven't received? God gave you your IQ. God gave you your aptitude. God gave you your mental reasoning skills. God even has given you your level of physical agility. So no athlete can boast about how great they're able to do whatever it is. And those same physical agility abilities are what are so essential for the gifted surgeon who operates on the human body or any of the other professions that require manual dexterity to perform things well. Why do certain individuals have it and others don't? Does not the potter have the right over the clay? You are who you are able to do with your abilities or lack thereof all because it's God's design and for no other reason. No wonder David said in the Psalms, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139. For you wove me together in my mother's womb. You're the one that fashioned me. Neither you nor I nor any other human being is a product of evolutionary chance. You are the handiwork of God made the way He wanted you to bring glory to Himself and to accomplish His his purpose through you. The potter has the right over the clay. And no wonder when Paul is describing this in Romans 9, he says, therefore, it's not the man who wills or the man who decides or the man who runs, but God who shows mercy. And so the response is, well, then how can he find fault since no human being resists his will? And Paul's answer is, who are you to speak back to God? Doesn't the potter have the right to make every vessel the way he wants to make it? You're going to tell me, you want to tell God he was wrong in making you the way he made you? To give you the abilities that you have? Instead, in true humility, you should recognize these abilities don't make me better than another person. These abilities are God-given, and I, in true humility, recognize my giftedness comes from God, and he is to receive the glory. And in the midst of all of that, it tells me in Proverbs 9... And in Proverbs 8, 
and in the new t- uh, other books of the Old Testament that when it comes to comprehending and making decisions and having the ability to discern things in problems and come up with a solution that's beneficial, God is the author of that wisdom. He makes some rulers wise rulers, even though they might be unregenerate individuals and in the absolute sense fools. And He makes other individuals who are in positions of authority who are there for whatever reason, by a coup, by popular vote, however they're there, that are blooming idiots. And God is the one that deprives them of the ability to make the appropriate decisions for the circumstances. Remember what he said to Pharaoh? Pharaoh was in that position. Why? For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might demonstrate my power on you to make my name known throughout all the earth. How many groups still look back to the Exodus and recount, God was greater than all the gods of the Egyptians. God is the one who gives understanding. Remember three, the four men taken captive by the Jews ended up in Babylon. They were put into school to be trained to be counselors to King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Why did they excel? Because God gave them wisdom in every branch of literature. Not just talking about biblical things. And learning. God made them wise individuals that were able to comprehend the things of this world in a way that they could sift through the issues that were there and come up with the most appropriate decision to how to handle it effectively. There is a relative sense of wisdom. And to where God makes some individuals wiser than others. Some of them have an expertise in a given area. And then their studies are beneficial for the rest of mankind. When you and I think of uh, individuals who have invented things that we take for granted, I'm glad God gave somebody the smarts to harness electricity, to figure out how to heat and air condition uh, the homes we live in. I still marvel at how individuals ever migrated west came into Texas and didn't have all those comforts and lived here uh, as the pioneers. I'm thankful for the smart cookies who came up with the comforts that we enjoy. God gave them that ability. Wisdom comes from Him. When it came time to build the tabernacle, do you know God called the individuals by name who He had gifted to be upholsterers? He had gifted to have an ability with jewelry. He had gifted to know how to sew and um, produce garments, how to be smiths with objects of metal. It says very clearly in Exodus 31, he called them by name because I gave them the ability in these various trades that they could do it. Do you understand the abilities you have come from God? And therefore, God is the one that's to be honored 
in how you utilize those abilities and that we should with gratitude thank him for how he has made us for we know that he has a purpose in why he designed us the way he did and really the answer in our heart should be Lord here I am use me open the doors for me to be the vessel in your hand to bring glory to your name. So as we go through life, we can see some non-believers who can make some very smart decisions. And at times, we can see believers who make some decisions they're going to have to pay for that weren't very well thought out. So there's a relative sense in being wise and being foolish. And what Solomon says is, when I make the decisions based on wisdom, it's always to the place that it's for my good, my benefit. But when the decision is made to the left hand, it's made foolishly, emotionally, unthought out, in anger, whatever it may be, it's always going to be to my detriment. And so the important thing for us to realize is a little foolishness has more weight than wisdom and honor. And I need to be looking to the Lord to keep me from making the foolish decisions that are going to be detrimental to my well-being and adversely impact others uh, because of them. Sense and nonsense. To God it all makes sense. And we need to be ones who are focused on Him, depending upon Him, to guide and direct us that our lives are for our good as well as His glory.